Chapter 10, Part 1 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. Tasmania and Victoria. Part 1. Friday, October the 24th, in Vercargill. The morning had come on which we were leaving New Zealand, and it was blowing a terrible hurricane. As we went in the train down to the bluff, we received no encouragement as to the abatement of the wind in the waving of the tussock grass and tea-tree waste we passed through. A simoon was being raised on the vast sand dunes in the distance. Arriving at the bluff, we found the greatest difficulty, from the violence of the wind, in walking along the wooden pier to where we saw the red funnel of the Union SS Company's Manapuri. It blinded and deafened us, and we narrowly escaped a terrible accident with an engine that was tearing down upon sea, who was walking between the rails on the pier. The driver was not looking, and the noise of the wind carried away all sound of the approaching locomotive. I happened to turn round at the moment when it was just on him and, with a shriek of horror, was just in time to seize and pull him out of the way. The bluff is the most detestable place, a cape lying out into the sea where a perpetual gale rages. The steamer would not sail till six in the evening, having only arrived late that morning, after a terrible night at sea, in the teeth of a headwind. The passengers in the social hall certainly looked as if much suffering had been their lot. All the afternoon the crew were lading grain and taking on board a large number of cattle. The poor beasts were slung off the railway trucks and lowered onto the decks by means of a steam winch and ropes passed round the body. It was piteous to see their look of terror when suspended in mid-air. Never were ship people more thoughtful for the comfort of their passengers than on this occasion, when they gave us dinner at half-past five instead of six, that we might have it over before starting. For I venture to say that twenty minutes after starting, nearly all the passengers were prostrate in their berths. No one thought of looking out for the coastline of Stuart's Island, which is sometimes called the South Island, and the other the Middle Island, we had a most terrible night's tossing in the Favaux Straits, all so very, very ill. We had the advantage of having two cabins opposite each other, but they were very far forward, quite in the bows of the boat, and so we had the full benefit of the motion. Saturday the 25th and Sunday the 26th were very blank days for us both, lying miserably ill in our berths. We heard in the distance the strains of the morning and evening service, and around us the more melancholy sounds of many sufferers. To add to our deep depression, C. remembered, and called feebly out to me, that we were thus miserably keeping an anniversary of our wedding day. Generally, I can count myself a fair sailor, but during this voyage of four days, I was pitilessly ill, and C. ate absolutely nothing the whole time. We were under water for the first 48 hours, the waves washing over the hurricane and main decks, 
and a porthole having been stove in at our end, the water swished down through the passage and into some of the cabins. Tuesday, October the 28th. Since daylight, the coast of Tasmania had been in sight, and going up on deck after breakfast, we were just passing by the headland of a curious formation, exactly resembling the giant's causeway, or Iona and Staffa. Here we entered the bay formed by the river Derwent, opening out to the sea, on which river twelve miles higher up lies the town of Hobart, the capital of Tasmania. We were alongside the wharf by 10.30, and in haste to set foot on terra firma. I explored the chief street of the town, Manchester Street, whilst C went to call on the governor, Sir George Strahan. We found that His Excellency and his private secretary, the Honourable John Wallop, were coming by the steamer to Melbourne. Hobart has a very dull, sleepy look, and the people we met in the street seemed to be chiefly the passengers off the Manapuri. The town, like the whole of Tasmania, is utterly devoid of enterprise. The colony contains 127,000 inhabitants, of whom 2,000 are in Hobart. So little has been done to improve the land that the beef and mutton for home consumption have to be imported from New Zealand, witness our cargo of cattle, and the only flourishing industry is the jam trade, of which £150,000 are annually sent to Victoria. Tasmania is an island rich in beautiful scenery, extremely beautiful, all Australians tell you. Its mountain ranges culminate in the lofty peaks of the Cradle Mountain, Ben Lomond and Mount Humboldt. It is clothed with forests in which the gum trees attain to an extraordinary height. The climate is perfect, with a clear atmosphere and cool breeze, so that Tasmania has come to be the great sanatorium of Australia. When the heat of the summer declares itself in Melbourne and Sydney, there is a general exodus to Tasmania, and Hobart is gay during its season of three months. It seemed to me as if the Australians must be rather pushed to it for a watering place if they make Hobart their principal one. The Manapuri had gone round to the cattle wharf to swim the cattle ashore, and, thus stranded, we wandered about exploring the dull sleepiness of the little town. Then we went for a drive through the domain in order that I might see Government House. It is a beautiful, castellated mansion, built in the old days of transportation to Van Diemen's Land, and when convict labour was cheap. The gardens run down to the Derwent, whose waters are so still and broad that you quite think it is a lake in the park. We drove next through Macquarie Street, an interminable street called after a former governor, who gave his name to many places, perpetuating it seemingly as far and as long as possible. On either side were the fashionable residences of Hobart, small houses standing back from the road, like suburban villas. Already we saw no tree but the eternal gum tree, which alone flourishes in Australia. Its dull blue foliage formed the covering to the extreme summit of the rounded dome of Mount Wellington, our drive to the Cascade ended in the Cascade Brewery, the waterfall being a walk of a mile farther. C. paid a long visit to Mr. Solly, the Under-Secretary, who gave him a great deal of information about Tasmania. The Premier, the Honourable A. D. Douglas, 
was unfortunately out of town for the day, but he came on board later in the evening. We went at four to the House of Assembly. They accommodated us with chairs on the floor of the house, and it was most uncomfortably shy work passing before the Speaker's chair to reach them in the face of the assembled members. We took on board an immense theatrical troupe of sixty and their paraphernalia and scenery, which had to be lowered scene by scene into the hold, delaying us for two hours, so that it was eight o'clock before we left Hobart. We had half thought of going overland from Hobart to Launceston, so as to see the interior of Tasmania, but we were deterred by the twelve hours crossing of Bass's Straits in a wretched steamer. We bought some of the pretty Tasmanian shells, but I was disappointed in not being able to get any of the native catskins, whose soft dark fur with white spots makes such pretty trimmings. They are scarce now, as government has protected them from the two great depredations that were being practised. The same protection has also had to be extended to the opossums to save them from total annihilation. Thursday, October the 30th. About 11 a.m. we entered the heads at Port Phillip, passing into the beautiful Hobson's Bay, which extends for 40 miles on either side of us, and is 40 miles in length, from the heads to the mouth of the Yarra. The weather became instantly warmer in the bay, and everyone came up on deck to sun themselves. We passed the little island on which lies the watering place of Queenscliff, a few houses with a monster hotel. Later on, the quarantine station and Sorrento, a favourite resort for holiday-makers, and then we saw Melbourne, or rather its two suburbs of Brighton and St Kilda. Twenty miles off there were the dark ranges of Dandenong, a spur of the Gippsland Mountains forming a gloomy background to Melbourne, and to the west Geelong on the Bay of Como, with the single peak of the Anarchies. All vessels have to pass ten miles up the Yarra and anchor at the docks at Williamstown. At the mouth of the river opposite Sandridge, we stopped to take the pilot on board, and the steam launch, with the governor's aide-de-camp, sent to meet the governor of Tasmania, came alongside. Captain Hughes was the bearer of a letter from the governor, Sir Henry Broom Loch, with a cordial invitation to us to Government House. We landed at the wharf at Sandridge. There was a guard of honour of the Victorian Permanent Artillery Force drawn up to salute the Governor, and Mr Chomley, the Chief Commissioner of the Victoria Constabulary, welcomed us. Long before we arrived at Government House, we saw the enormous pile of buildings, with the tower which forms the finest Government House of the colonies, and is the largest stone dwelling house in Australasia. Some people think the building extremely ugly and talk of the tower as the chimney of a manufactory, but in any case it presents a suitably imposing appearance. Passing through the stone gateway with the carved armorial bearings and the lodge used as a guardhouse, we drove up to one of the several handsome portico entrances. The arrangement of the reception rooms is excellent. They are entirely apart from the everyday rooms, and have two separate entrances, one of which is kept as the entree, that leads to the yellow satin-lined drawing-room, the state dining-room, and magnificent ballroom, which is twenty feet longer than that of Buckingham Palace. 
The party staying in the house were Sir William Robinson, Governor of South Australia, and Miss Robinson, with Mr. William as ADC, Sir George Strahan and Mr. Wallop, Lord William Neville and the staff, consisting of Lord Castleross, Captain Trail, Captain Seymour Hughes, and Mr. Sturgis. C and I went into the town in the afternoon to fetch our letters at the post office, and were gladdened by a large budget of home news. We were struck with the excellent arrangements for obtaining the letters, and the post office is a magnificent building outside. It seemed so strange and bewildering at first to see crowded streets once more, the carriages going in single file, and the people jostling each other on the pavements, for all the country folk are in town just now, come up for the cup and the race week. In the evening we went to a grand fancy ball given by Sir William and Lady Clark at the town hall, which was beautifully decorated with flowers, the platform at the end being made into a bower of tree ferns. The ball was a magnificent sight, with twelve hundred people in costumes of every period, interspersed with uniforms of the navies and armies of several nations. The dresses were much more elaborate and expensive than you would generally see at a fancy ball in England. It was very strange to think that night of our first introduction to Australia, a fancy ball in Melbourne. Very strange to think of a round of gaieties going on in the Antipodes with not less rush than in the London season at home. Saturday, November the 1st, was the Derby Day of the Melbourne races. We left Government House at noon, a party of 14 on the coach, with the Governor driving. They had considerately watered the roads, and we did not suffer from the dust, which usually rises in clouds in the broad streets of Melbourne. We drove round to the members' entrance, and up the centre of the course, pulling up opposite to the judge's stand. The Governor and Lady Loch were conducted to the vice-regal box in the centre of the stand by the stewards and the secretary of the Victoria Racing Club, Mr. Byron Moore, the band playing God Save the Queen, and the first race, fixed for 1pm, then came off. There was general interest taken in this race on account of many of the horses running in it being entered for the cup. The Flemington race course is extremely pretty, much more so than the course at Ascot, and the arrangements for the races are quite perfect in every respect. There is a beautiful lawn in front of the grandstand, on which the band plays, with a raised concrete terrace leading to the stand. Above that again is the artificial hill, on which you see placarded sundry numbers. These numbers indicate the rendezvous of the smaller bookmakers after the race, for which privilege they pay a yearly rent of £10. There are luncheon and refreshment rooms, and the ladies' cloakrooms are large and spacious, with every toilet requisite, even down to the pincushion with needles ready threaded with different shades of silk, and which we were shown with great pride as an example of the completeness of the minor details. The charge for the stand is only ten shillings, all inclusive. There is a separate room for the press, communicating with the top of the stand, where they have their own operators and telegraph line. Thus they can come down from the stand and send off the result instantly after witnessing the race. There is no rowdyism and no crowding. Everybody is well dressed and well behaved. 
the betting ring is away from the stand and lawn and bookmakers are not allowed beyond the board marked silence there is a machine on the judge's stand the spring of which the starter presses as the horses go off and the hand goes round during the race marking the minutes and seconds the course was capitally cleared by the mounted police it was a very pretty sight warm and sunny on the lawn and not unpleasantly crowded people were magnificently and with a very few glaring exceptions tastefully dressed the tendency here is always towards bright and rather too striking contrasts but pretty faces and pretty gowns were plentiful the racing club provided the luncheon for the governor and his party in the reserved room at the back of the stand and there was a profusion of invitations to tea in the tents by the reserved space for carriages and the two or three four-in-hands which appeared the great race of the day the derby of australasia was run at three thirty bargo was the hot favourite but came in at the finish nowhere and rufus proved the winner of the derby amid intense excitement we left immediately afterwards the governor being cheered as he drove off the course we went to the bijou theatre in the evening when Miss de Grey's company performed Moths by Vice-Regal Command, as we learned by the white satin-printed programmes. As we came out, we heard the sound of dull cheers at the entrance, and the police with difficulty kept the path open for the Governor and Lady Loch. The enthusiastic crowd broke through as they drove off, and a most exciting scene ensued, the policemen vainly pommeling and fisticuffing the good-natured roughs, and we entered the carriage amid a general scrimmage. It was only the true larrikin element showing itself after the races and on a Saturday night. Sunday, November the 2nd. We went to a church, chiefly remarkable for the extraordinary height of its pulpit, and walked to it along the dusty bit of the St Kilda Road and over the cranky wooden bridge. There is a dispute between the town and the adjoining municipality, about the possession of this particular piece of road, and neither will allow its watering carts to go over it, with destructive results. The botanical gardens which we went through in the afternoon are most beautifully kept, with acres of mown grass, bright borders of flowers, and shrubs and trees of all kinds. There is a very pretty fern-tree gully, and a large artificial sheet of water forming a lake in the centre. The gardens lie on the slope of two hills, and the paths winding in and out give it a very extensive appearance. They adjoin the garden of Government House, and Baron von Müller has been greatly instrumental in their attaining to their present excellence. Such brilliant masses of flowers we saw growing in wild luxuriance. There were rose bushes trailing on the ground, orange and lemon groves, camellias and magnolias, bougainvillea and baronia, mixing with all our familiar commoner kinds, as geranium, verbena, lobelia, heliotrope, convolvulus, oleander, larkspur, cape jessamine, and many others. Monday, November the 3rd. We determined not to let another day pass without seeing something of Melbourne and its public buildings. We took a hansom and drove down Swanston, Collins and Burke Streets. Collins Street is the fashionable promenade and crowded in the afternoon. 
One of the most noticeable things about the streets of a town like this is the absence of tramways. Only omnibuses and hansoms ply, and that curious growler of Melbourne, the two-wheeled covered wagonette. They are laying wooden pavement in Collins Street and are talking of having cable cars. There is a strict rule of the road here, which obliges drivers to walk across all crossings. We passed the Mint and the new law courts, drove up to Sir Samuel Wilson's beautiful hall, which he has built and presented to the town at a cost of £30,000, round the Medical College and Museum, and beyond to Ormond College, built by Mr Ormond. We saw exhibition buildings where the International Melbourne Exhibition was held in 1881. The Roman Catholic Cathedral, and then we came to the parliamentary buildings. Mr Jenkins, clerk of the house, showed us through these. They are at present unfinished, but from the model that we saw in the hall, they will be a splendid pile of buildings when finished, surmounted by a dome, and estimated to cost £1,200,000. The contract will soon be decided on, but for the past three years, the members from various parts of Victoria have been disagreeing over the material for the building, each member advocating the stone found in his particular district. The library is a fine room, with a gallery upstairs devoted to the local newspapers, interesting to the individual members. The House of Assembly is very commonplace, but the Legislative Council Chamber is rather original, decorated in crimson and gold, and lighted from the half-domes in the ceiling. It looks like the room of some old Italian palace. The Council is elected by the people for five years, differing in this from New Zealand and some of the other colonies of Australia, where the members of the Legislative Council are nominated by the Governor for life. The Legislative Assembly is elected by universal suffrage and the members receive a salary of £300 a year. The vestibule is very fine and painted dead white, with a marble statue of the Queen in the centre. There is, of course, a dining room and bar attached, but there is also the unusual provision of two billiard tables. They affirm that it operates as the best whip and that government and opposition members are thrown together by it, and lose somewhat of their mutual acerbity in the friendly conflict of the billiard balls. We next drove to the public library, a low stone building with a broad flight of steps. It includes the picture gallery and museum. In the latter, there are models of some splendid nuggets found in Victoria, including those of the famous Blanche Barclay and Welcome Nuggets that weigh over 2,000 ounces each. The picture gallery is the nucleus of a good national collection which is forming. They have several pictures by RRAs, and the latest addition to it has been Miss Thompson's Roll Call, for which they have given the sum of £4,000. The library is much frequented by all classes, especially in the newspaper room, where we saw many working men looking at the papers. It contains some very interesting and valuable books and prints, many of which have been collected and arranged by Sir George Verdon, who takes great personal interest in the library. Melbourne has no drainage of any kind, but yet its death rate is only the same as in London. The Van Yeen waterworks, 16 miles away, supply water to the town. 
the reservoir contains over six billions of water. And now, having seen Melbourne, the great metropolis of Australasia, its public buildings, its busy thoroughfares and general go-ahead look, we must be continually thinking and remembering that it is little more than fifty years ago since the Hentys, son of Mr. Thomas Henty, a banker in Sussex, were the first settlers in Victoria, and less than fifty years ago since John Faulkner pitched his tent on the rising ground of the future site of Melbourne. We met Mr. Henty whilst in Melbourne, the descendant of these first settlers, an owner now of many thousands of acres in Victoria. My husband has already seen the Premier, Mr. Service, who was most cordial, and all the ministers expressed a wish to be of use to him, or to give him any information in their power. The Daily Telegraph, the Herald, and other papers had interviewed him. Melbourne possesses the best paper in the colonies in the Melbourne Argus, and has the advantage of having Mr. Julian Thomas, the well-known author of the Vagabond Papers, among its contributors. The Age is also a most excellent paper. The Australasian and Federal Australian are the best weekly papers and are ably edited. End of chapter 10, part 1